Welcome to Deep Dives, Egypt, episode number eight, The Recensions of the Book of the Dead. Okay, so this episode took a very long time to make. And so, as this is the case, it'll be one of the best and most interesting episodes yet. The sheer breadth of information and data available to us can at first be daunting and a little overwhelming. The Book of the Dead itself is a sizable book, and all of the references and annotations needed in order to make the writings intelligible to me make the task of understanding it succinctly a lot greater of an effort than what was initially expected. I've done my absolute best to refine the 700 pages or so down to key values, principles, and precepts. We're going to attempt to drive home the principles of harmony, truth, right, and balance within this copious episode. The Book of the Dead is actually an underwhelming title for what is an instructive collection of excerpts, hymns, and odes that were actively utilized by the ancient Egyptians. The title is representative in so much as those works were primarily used in the preparation for and navigation through death into either cooler sands or eternal banishment into non-existence. Late in the 19th century AD, the famed British anthropologist Sir Ernest Alfred Thomas Wallace Budge first compiled his masterful collection of translations in English. His concentration was on uncovering the meanings of the artifacts that he recovered from the necropolises and ruins of Egypt, the Sudan, and Iraq, which took the forms of funerary papyri, hieratic inscriptions upon sarcophagi, relief carvings in mortuaries and temples, and dozens of other funerary relics. After years of careful collection, Budge would maintain one of the most inspiring accumulations of artifacts known to history, and from it he would publish a sprawling 140 major works. Budge's work would invariably germinate a more vivid picture of this ancient empire within the minds of his contemporaries and followers, and earn him worldwide acclaim. A tantalizing image of ancient Egypt would be born after he published his version of the Egyptian Book of the Dead in 1899. Although Mr. Budge's efforts inspired hundreds of subsequent anthropologists, as well as Hollywood producers and writers, he was not the first to translate these works. In any case, we will use his version in today's analysis. It would be Dr. Richard Lepsius of Berlin who would do this, and he was preceded by the infamous Jean-Francois Champollion, the decipherer of hieroglyphics. Lepsius would produce the first-ever modern edition of the funerary scripts with his Das Todimbuch der Egypter, and excuse my German, I'm not the best. Both Samuel Birch of the British Museum and Henry Edouard Neville of Geneva would also provide comprehensive and compelling translations accompanied by their personal commentaries. Following Mr. Budge's contributions, the funerary papyri would be retranslated many times within the anthropological community, 
with modern translators such as Miriam Lichtheim and Raymond Faulkner producing more modernized versions of the Book of the Dead. As is the case with any translated composition, it'll invariably carry the personal touch of the author, which can expand upon or leave out some of the work's original meaning. It also has to be noted that the implications a contemporary reader draws from the text are not going to be the same as that of the ancient Egyptian reader. The cultural lens we look through differs significantly from that of the time we are discussing. Our customs and our upbringings, our concepts of right and wrong, our beliefs and our superstitions are all distinctly different today than what they were back then. As we dive into the Book of the Dead, we will need to recognize this. Many of the passages may not make sense, and this is because the implications are out of our cultural perception and in our periphery. To make the best of this episode then, we're going to use the help of modern translations and commentary. These commentaries will be drawn from the most prestigious of translations, although mainly via Mr. Ernest Alfred Budges. In order to clear up any misconceptions and to bring us all to the same page, it is important for the listener to note that the Book of the Dead is actually not a book at all. It's not a kind of composition that was brought about from the idea of it being published as a complete and comprehensive work that contained all of the wisdoms and prayers and hymns of the age. Rather, the Book of the Dead is a collection of thousands of substrata which were collected and compiled by Mr. Budge and his contemporaries, and then broken into chapters in such a way that may be conveyed best. Each translation is slightly different, as we mentioned earlier, with Mr. Budge's being more prosaic and representative of the crafty verbiage of his time, which was the late 1800s into the early 1900s AD. Some would say that he is more difficult for the modern student to read than is Miriam Lichtheim's and Raymond Faulkner's, but some suggest that Budge presents the most accurate and unaltered version, and as I agree with this case, and because I bought his book and not the others, we will stick to Mr. Budge's translations. Whatever the original meanings of the texts may be, we will find a way to take something from what we are provided, and I feel as if this type of temperament taking that which you are given and utilizing it to the best of your ability will be a recurring ingredient of the book, but this is yet to be found. The purpose of this episode then is to expand our understanding of the belief system that underlies Egyptian theology. The Book of the Dead gives us a more personal touch, and as such we will be able to see from the perspectives of the common men in ancient Egypt for the first time, we will be able to see outside the perspective of the monarch, the high priest, and the noble. We will be able to encounter the superstitions and beliefs of the common man. The Book of the Dead can best be described as the sacred texts that sought to ensure the well-being of the dead in their passing into the afterlife. They were intended to be used as words of power by the deceased in the underworld. The ancients would rely on the efficacy of these hymns and recitals to smoothen their ethereal ascent and steer their transcendental voyage. 
They were used as a roadmap, a utilizable tool with which eternal happiness may be secured. It would lead them through the realms of light and dark and bring them into the presence of the god Osiris, who presided over the underworld and held the key of reincarnation. We do not, at the present moment, know the date by which the volumes of funerary papyri, called the Recensions, were formulated first within the psyche. We do know, though, that they were ancient even to the ancients. Around the time of circa 3500 BC, we see the first ever recorded copies appear from the hands of the ancient scribes. Judging by the mistakes and misconceptions made by the scribes in translating the scripts, we can deduct that those scripts that the scribes were dealing with were not fully comprehensible to them either. And this may present an explanation on why some of the passages are unintelligible. What precipitated the first hymns and passages being made? And who brought them into being? One thing is sure, we have no clue, but that's the fun part. Also, just for a little creative stimulation, imagine a time when the upper parts of the Nile, which are now overrun by hot sands, were teeming with fantastic wildlife and vicious beasts. Imagine forests, trees, and wide marshlands with copious amounts of flora and fauna. This is the time where we will begin. The god Osiris and the Book of the Dead are interdependent and inseparable. He is ever-present throughout the chapters and can be deemed, in my opinion, as the chief of all the gods when considering their hierarchical importance within the funerary scripts. The tale of Osiris can be summarized as such. Osiris was born as a divine to the earth where he existed within a material body. He was dupliciously murdered by his brother Seth, who then dismembered his body into many parts. Seth was infuriated by his brother Osiris. He believed that Osiris slept with Isis, of which Horus was born. Horus, though, was said to have been born to Isis while she was a virgin, and not through the affair before mentioned. Horus is also said to have had 12 disciples, walked on water, and delivered a sermon on the mountain. Thus, Osiris was murdered treacherously by Seth. Then, Isis, who was also the sister of Osiris, gathered up his bodily pieces, and with a divine spells of the god of divine intelligence, Thoth, she recombined him and Osiris was thrust back into existence. He then became immortalized and would travel to the underworld, where he would take up his eternal residence. Osiris would afterward become the king of the dead and judge of the underworld. Throughout the Book of the Dead, Osiris will be referred to with many names, a couple of these being Nebekcher and Unnefer. As Osiris defeated death and was resurrected and immortalized, every Egyptian believer would identify with him at death in order to replicate his feet and find eternal peace in the afterlife. 
one would plead with Osiris in order that they may be granted this wish. There's a plethora of gods in the Egyptian pantheon, but as we will see, Osiris will carry a recurring importance. Here we can see how one would identify with Osiris in the hymn to Ra when he riseth. Also, Ra is the god of matter, creator of the gods, and takes the form of the rising and setting sun and also the sun disk. He has many forms and has many attributes. Open quote. O Lord of the gods, O cast thou thy light upon me, and let me see thy beauties. Me the Osiris, Kenna the merchant, victorious. And when thou goest forth over the earth, I will sing praises unto thy fair face. Close quote. Ra is also of particular importance in the Book of the Dead. The cult of Ra was one of the first to gain in prominence, and Ra has always shown favor among the priesthood, kings, and pharaohs. It is said that Ra created all things, but was brought forth from the god Nu, who is the, quote, watery mass out of which all the gods were evolved. We can see here the principle of Ma'at emerge again, which as it turns out, is a goddess as much as it is a principle. You cannot have one without the other. In so much as Ra, quote, gave thyself birth, he could have never materialized if it were not for Nu, who provided the medium for his existence. Nu, also, cannot exist without his parallel form of noon, or inactivity. We can ascribe a certain underlying principle to each god and each goddess. Perhaps the gods, then, were the manifests of the already existent principles, and they took the form within the minds of the ancients in order to magnify these universal precepts. Being the daughter of Ra and the wife of Toth, or Toth, Ma'at, quote, assisted at the work of creation. She is the goddess of absolute regularity and order, and of moral rectitude, and of right and truth. Her emblem is the feather, end quote. All of the gods are said to follow the principles of Ma'at, and that they exist in absolute harmony only because of their eternal adherence to that principle. Ra is venerated as not only being the creator, but the creator of the forces of creation. From Ra would arise many gods and goddesses who would create the manifests of truth, matter, life, and death. We can see this with another excerpt from A Hymn to Ra When He Riseth. Quote, Thou didst create the earth, thou didst fashion man, thou dost create the watery abyss, and thou dost give life unto all therein is. Close quote. The question arises then, did Ra formulate Nu, this watery abyss, or did Nu precede even Ra? In another hymn to Ra from a papyrus from a man called Necht, we encounter this dialectic. Necht mentions in his hymn that Ra is, quote, the heir of eternity, self-begotten and self-born, but then proceeds to say, quote, Thou comest forth from the water. Thou hast sprung from the god Nu, who cherishes thee, and ordered thy members." If Ra created all things, then how was he sprung from Nu? 
I'm not playing hardball with the ancient Egyptian religious beliefs here, but there seems to be a fair bit of crisscross and overlap within the fundamental chain of theologic. What is even more interesting is that the god Toth, the before-mentioned divine intelligence, is said to have been self-produced. Toth is also said to have plotted the course of Ra as he traipsed over the sky. If Ra is the creator of all things and the god of gods, then why would he need a course plotter? Is this divine intelligence of Toth a principle separate from the machinations of the gods and consequently devoid of the need for it to be created? Is it also something that cannot be destroyed, even by all the forces of the gods? This seems to be the case. Again, Ma'at permeates. This reality is reminiscent of a quote from an earlier episode that was taken from the Wisdoms of Tahotep, and it states, quote, The power of truth and justice is that they endure. We can expand upon this principle of Ma'at with the following quotation, quote, Homage to thee, O Amun-Ra, who dost rest upon Ma'at, and who passes over the heaven, every face seeth thee. End quote. It's said that Amun-Ra maintains an existence whose, quote, risings and settings are ordered and defined by fixed, unchanging, and unalterable laws. It remains that these unalterable laws bound the capabilities of even the gods. Perhaps in this case, then, Ma'at should have been the preeminent deity. The Book of the Dead has many components. As I mentioned earlier, it was broken into chapters and scenes. The introductory hymns that we covered previously were directed towards Ra and Osiris. Now we will take a look at the Judgment Scene, which remains to be one of the most important components of the book that acts as a gateway to the rest of the works. All souls were judged at death by the all-seeing eye of Osiris, and were not permitted entry into his dominions if they did not pass his judgments. All souls who failed in this test were devoured by the eater of the dead and were erased from existence. Quite gloomy. This aspect of Egyptian religious belief would have indeed instilled a superstition among the ancients that felt very real. What is at least bit comforting though is that it had no renderings of protracted punishment or extended time in purgatory. Instead, the souls were judged swiftly after their death and the proverbial hand was dealt to them at that point. From analysis done in earlier deep dives, we found that the souls of the dead were given care and assistance by the living. There were times during Egyptian history when crates of loaves of bread, wine, and oils were delivered to the tombs of the deceased in order to give their souls the comforts of the physical world. Entire legions of priests and scribes would recite the texts written across the deceased coffins and funerary scripts in order to provide the words of power necessary to assist them in their judgment. The Papyrus of Ani, which is now stored at the British Museum, describes the scene of the weighing of the heart of the dead.
For the purposes of visualization of the scene of the weighing of the heart of the dead, we will quote Mr. Budge's description of the vignette or picture which represents this symbolic moment. Open quote. The scribe Ani and his wife Tuthu enter the hall of double Ma'at, wherein the heart, symbolic of the conscience, is to be weighed in the balance against the feather, emblematical of right and truth. In the upper register are the gods who sit in judgment, whose names are Hamarchus, the great god in his boat, Temu, Shu, Tefnut, the Lady of Heaven, Seb, Nut, the Lady of Heaven, Isis, Nephthys, Horus the Great God, Hathor the Lady of Amenta, Hu, and Sa. On the standard of the scales sits the dog-headed ape, the companion of Toth, the scribe of the gods, and the god Anubis, jackal-headed, tests the tongue of the balance. On the left of the balance, facing Anubis, are Ani's luck, the Meshkin, or cubit with a human head, thought by some to be connected with the place of birth and early education of children. And the soul of Ani is in the form of a human-headed bird standing on the pylon. On the right of the balance, behind Anubis, stands Thoth, the scribe of the gods, who holds in his hand his reed pen and palette with which to record the result of the trial. Behind Toth stands the monster, called either Amam, the Devourer, or Amit, the Eater of the Dead. End quote. Truth carries an everlasting importance within Egyptian theology. In order for the Ka, or the Spirit, to be deemed righteous, it must never speak that which is not true. Truth, as we can see, prevails, and falsehood does not escape the keen watch of Toth. The next series of works in the Book of the Dead is the chapters of Coming Forth by Day. Of these, there are many, and so for brevity, we're going to cover that in the next episode. Since the Book of the Dead is a large book and even a larger concept, we will dedicate several episodes to it in no particular order throughout the rest of the season. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Deep Dives. If you've made it this far, then consider yourself an expert diver. I'm glad to have you along for the ride. Tune in to the next Walk Through Time to continue with the 18th Dynasty of the New Kingdom. So remember, stay intrigued. See you next time.